Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, we are coming up on the year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. And if you can remember back to that first week where Russia invaded Ukraine, the experts were saying that Kiev, the capital city, would be turned over in a matter of days, possibly weeks, and that Ukraine was going to be consumed by the Russians. But here we are about a year later, and Ukrainian people who have been wounded are still fighting strong. And you ask yourself, why is this? Why did they defy the experts? How is it that they are still fighting against Russia, which is the biggest country in the world geographically and has one of the strongest militaries in the world? How are they still fighting with hope? And I think probably the biggest answer is leadership. When President Volodymyr Zelensky was asked by the U.S. government if he would like to have a flight out of Ukraine, his response was, the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. Zelensky has inspired his country time and time again, saying things like, you know what, history is unfair. We are not the ones who started this war, but we will be the ones to finish it. Zelensky has not only talked the talk, but he has walked the walk. He has fought alongside of his men and women in Ukraine. He has led them publicly through social media and other means because of his personal philosophy that although a president cannot change a nation, what he can do is he can give an example to his people, which he has done in so many ways. Just last month, Zelensky had to fire officials holding them accountable because they were skimming off the top of the donations that were pouring into the country. Many men have testified that the reason why they stayed and fought for Ukraine was simply because Zelensky's leadership. Zelensky has received standing ovations from leaders all around the world. And among Ukrainians, his approval rating is over 90%. He's not only the most popular politician in Ukraine, he's actually the most popular politician in the United States with an over approval rating of over 70%. Contrast his leadership with the man on the other side of the war, Vladimir Putin, who in October called men to come and to join the fight. And in response, more Russians fled the country than signed up to fight with one of the strongest militaries in the entire world because they did not want to fight for this man. They did not believe in his cause. Leadership matters a lot. Leadership impacts the health and success of any organization. If you have ever had a bad boss or a bad company or a bad coach, you know how true this is. Bad leadership can be toxic and it can make 
life miserable. But a good leader who might be boring can still inspire commitment and creativity and sacrifice and compassion. And this is not only true in politics and in sports and in business, but it's also true in the church. We planted Jakeswell Church 12 years ago, and as you probably know, if you're new here, I love to grab coffee with you. I love to hear your story. And probably one of the biggest surprises for me as a pastor, listening to people's stories, is how many people have been wounded by leadership in a previous church. Now, this isn't simply a a disagreement on theology with a former pastor, but there are stories that come in every week, practically, about how pastors have ostracized people, betrayed people, abused people. I've heard stories of pastors misappropriating funds to buy huge houses, stories of pastors who have fired staff who have gently and humbly come to confront them on potential sin issues. I've heard stories of churches who have declared unanimous votes on elections that were not unanimous. Again, this is one of the biggest surprises to me when I planted Jacobswell Church. It's just how many people come here wounded from previous church leadership. Now, the reason why so many people have been wounded by church leadership is because church leaders are sin strugglers. No church leadership is perfect, including Jacobswell Church. I know there are times I can be petty, defensive, impatient, and there are more times than I would like to admit that I've had to repent to people in the congregation because I failed as their pastor or as their brother in Christ. And I know it's going to happen again. And because all church leaders are far from perfect, how our church leadership is structured is very, very, very important, both to the health of the people in the church, but also our witness to people outside the church. And that's what our focus is today. If you would, please open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is page 991 in the Red Bible. If you don't have one, Feel free to get up and grab one from the back. You will absolutely need a Bible today. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you from Jacobswell Church. Uh, As you turn there, let me remind you uh, that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to show him the blueprints for the local church. Last week, we talked about how uh, there is a lot of confusion in the local church when it comes to gender, to male and female, and there's confusion in the world, if you haven't noticed. And so, so God speaks clearly about the beauty of the gender that God has, the genders that God has created. Last week, we saw God's design for women in the church. Today, we get to see God's design for men in the church. And so if you are wondering what manhood looks like according to God, Today is a passage that would show you that, because even though we're looking for through the qualifications of an elder, really, this is, these are qualifications that every man should aspire to. And so as we read this passage, men, this is an opportunity for you to look and to consider and to ask, what areas do I need to grow in? What areas has God grown me in? So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, 
not a lover of money. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you did not leave us to make up church on our own, uh, to, to use our finite sinful minds to figure out how the church should operate. But God, by your grace, you have given us your blueprints for the church, Lord. And so God, pray, pray that we would receive this instruction with gratitude that with repentance, and that we would seek to put it into practice for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In my experience, people in their 20s and 30s could care less about how the leadership of the church is structured. But people from their mid-30s and 40s and 50s care a lot about how the leadership of the church is structured. And typically it's because they have lived long enough in the church that they have been hurt by leadership in the church or they have seen leadership function in a way that is not healthy. And so the question is, does God give us a blueprint for how leadership should work in the church? And the answer is yes. God gives us a blueprint of elders, we believe that a plurality of elders is what Scripture tells us to do to establish leadership in the church. And so I want to answer three questions when it comes to eldership. First, what are the biblical grounds for eldership? Second, what are the biblical responsibilities for eldership? And third, what are the biblical qualifications of eldership? Now, I'm going to address this a little bit differently than normal. If you're new here, usually you just start going through the passage and answering uh, the questions through that. But today, the first two questions, I want to look at a broader look of the scripture to answer these questions of what are the biblical grounds for eldership and what are the responsibilities or roles of elders. And so I want to look at that and then uh, we'll spend shorter time on that. And then the third point, we'll really look through the passage today and look at the qualifications for elders. So first, let's look at what are the biblical ground for elders now, I know we come from a lot of different church backgrounds. Uh, many of us were raised Catholic, or we came from a Baptist, or non-denominational, or a Methodist church. Uh, if you did not know this, Jacob's Well is Presbyterian. Surprise! And uh, we don't wave the banner of Presbyterianism because we want to wave the banner of Jesus. But with that said, we love being Presbyterian, and we are proudly Presbyterian. We are unashamed of it. See, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which simply means elder. And this is where we get the name Presbyterian. It simply means that our church is run by a plurality of elders. The word elder is used 77 times in the New Testament. When you see it in the Gospels, it's usually referring to the elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, that plurality of leadership. But then once you get to the book of Acts and on, it's typically focused on elders in the local church. In the book of Acts, where churches are being planted throughout the world, we read in Acts 14, 23, it says this, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had 
believed. This was the custom of the Apostle Paul. He would go, he would evangelize, he would plant a church, he would appoint elders to govern over that church. Similarly, in Titus, Paul says this, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, what needed to be put into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. First Peter 5 exhorts the elders of the churches of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And so it seems fairly consistent throughout the New Testament that a plurality of elders is appointed in every local church to lead the church. Furthermore, that the elders of these local churches would get together to provide accountability to the lower churches. We see this in Acts chapter 15, where elders gather together at the Council of Jerusalem to make decisions on theological issues that matter and the dispenses that over the churches throughout the world. Now, this plurality of leadership in the local church with authority above it from the larger church is not explicitly, it's, it's not only explicitly displayed in the New Testament, it's also implicitly necessary as we study the scriptures and our understanding of man. Because the scriptures tell us that men are fallen, that men are finite, that they're limited in their power and in their time. There are some churches that have a centralized leadership and where one person has all the power like a monarch or a king. It may be the local pastor who gets to make all of the decisions and is never outvoted, or it might be someone above the church, like a bishop or a pope that makes decisions for the church without being a part of the church. The, the issue with a monarchical system where there's centralized leadership in a single person is that nobody is perfect. Everybody is flawed. Everybody is sinful. We all have blind spots, and we are all finite. And so all of us need accountability. John Dahlberg once said, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm sure you've heard the quote. This is not only true in politics, but it's also true in the church. You see, there is only one good and perfect king, and his name is Jesus. The rest of us need accountability. The rest of us need oversight. The rest of us need someone that will keep us into check. I don't know if you know this, but the Presbyterian form of church government that we have is foundational in establishing the church government of the United States. They had escaped the monarchy from England, which was common across the world, a monarchy, and they wanted to create a more Presbyterian form of government for our nation. And so they created a democracy, which mirrored the Presbyterian form of church government that creates a plurality of leadership with checks and balances and accountability within it. I love what Winston Churchill once said. He said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all other forms of government. In other words, democracy has its hangups. It can be inefficient, but it's far better than the alternative of having a monarch that is working in isolation, that is dictating everything because it is run by sinful human beings. And so what are the biblical grounds for eldership, a plurality of leadership? Well, in the New Testament, it explicitly tells us they established elders in every church as they planted the churches. But implicitly, we know that there's only one good king, and it's Jesus. And so none of us should be the monarch. None of us should be the king. Jesus is king. The rest of us need accountability with checks and balances. So that is the biblical 
grounds for eldership. Secondly, what are the responsibilities of elders? There's a lot of responsibilities that are listed in the New Testament, but I kind of want to narrow it down to you into four primary responsibilities. First, elders lead and love the church. Look at verse one with me. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, nowhere in today's passage does it actually use the word elder. But what is evident from Paul's other writings is that he uses this term elder and overseer and shepherd and pastor interchangeably. An example of this is in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says this, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, okay, elders, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on, he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. These are qualifications to identify elders, similar to what we'll have in today's passage. He says, for an overseer. And so he just uses that term interchangeably. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Here in other places in the New Testament, Paul uses these terms interchangeably, and we'll see it again here in a little bit. But to help you understand why Paul uses certain terms in certain passages, it's because he's trying to emphasize certain aspects of the role of an elder. You know, it's similar with our own president. I don't know why I got so political today. Everything's about politics. But, but if you think of the president of the United States, right, some people call him POTUS, which is just, you know, an acronym for president of the United States. But this past week, they have been calling him the commander-in-chief, mostly. And the reason why they've been calling him commander-in-chief is because there was a balloon floating over our country. And people are saying, you need to protect our country. You are the commander-in-chief of the military. You need to shoot that thing down. And so they've been referring to him as commander-in-chief. Now, it's the same position, president of the United States, but it has different titles that reflect different aspects of his job. And so some people might call him president of the United States, commander-in-chief, head of state, chief of state. These are different titles for the same position that communicate different aspects of that position. In the same way, what we see is that, that Paul uses various phrases to talk about the leaders in the church. In this passage, he uses the word overseer, which comes from the Greek word episkope, which means to oversee. Again, this is the same role as elder, and it's emphasizing that one of the main roles of an elder is to oversee the church, the care of the church, the doctrine of the church, the leadership of the church, the vision of the church. It's kind of a catch-all that they are to oversee the congregation. And they're to do it with compassion and care. This is clarified in 1 Peter 5 when he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Interesting, that word oversight is the same word that's used in the 1 Timothy 2 passage, but it's the verbal form of it. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And so God calls the elders to be his under shepherds, to lead and to love his flock, not in a domineering way, but with gentleness and love and compassion and care. I've shared this illustration a while ago, but I think it's a fun illustration. There's a story of an American tourist group that goes to Israel, and they're getting a tour of the Holy Land, and they're on a bus, and the tour guide says, you know, a shepherd never, never, or a shepherd always leads the flock 
from the front, okay, a flock of sheep. He always leads it from the front. Well, they're driving along, and they look out the window, and sure enough, they see a guy driving the sheep from behind. And so they, they question the tour guide about this, and I'm guessing he's a little bit embarrassed. And so he tells the man to stop the bus. He stops the bus. He gets out of the van, and he goes, and he talks to this man, and he comes back on the bus, and he says, this man is not a shepherd. He is the butcher. <laughs> He's driving them to their slaughter. It is true that sometimes shepherds need to chase down their wandering sheep. It is true that sometimes shepherds need to discipline their sheep. And scripture calls elders to do the same. But first and foremost, shepherds are called to lead the sheep and to love the sheep of God. Second task is elders are to teach and preach the word. Talking to Timothy, Paul says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then we get to Titus chapter one again. He says he must hold, Tom on elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, that is to teach in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicts it. In Acts chapter six, when elders are, I'm sorry, when elders institute deacons, they say, but we, talking about the elders, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. At Jacobswell Church, not all of our elders are preachers, but all of our elders are teachers. Furthermore, not all of our teachers are elders, but all of our elders are teachers. They don't always teach from the pulpit, but they teach in small groups. They teach in Sunday school. They teach in communicants class. They teach in summer studies. They teach in children's church. They teach across the table as they meet with people. Elders lead and love the church. Elders preach and teach the word. Thirdly, elders protect and defend the church from false teaching and from false teachers. Acts chapter 20 talks about this. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, to care for the church of God, which is obtained by his own blood. And then he says this, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Titus 1.9, speaking to the elders, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to instruct in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Just as an actual shepherd would protect the sheep from wolves, so spiritual shepherds are to protect God's sheep from wolves who are often dressed in sheep's clothing, who often confess themselves to be Christians. Now, I don't think predominantly wolves come into our church personally as, as people that are easier targets for them to go to, I think, within our community. But there is still false teaching that infiltrates this church through, through, uh, through podcasts and through, through books and through songs. And so practically, what does this look like for the elders of Jacobswell Church? Well, every song we sing on a Sunday morning is under the scrutiny of the elders. Not for the beats, not for how catchy we think it is or how much we like the song, but for its theological content. I didn't plan this out, but this morning we sang that song, Come to the Altar, you know? And the elders said, had a huge debate on whether or not we could sing the song. Because in our, in our society, in our community, many people think of the communion table as the altar. But the communion table is not the altar, because Christ is not sacrificed at the communion table. 
He was sacrificed once and for all for our sins. And so the altar is the cross. That's where the ultimate sacrifice was made. And so you may not know this, but every time we sing that song, David has to say the altar is the cross. And he did that this morning. It's required of him to do that because we want to guard the doctrine of the church. We don't want people to think that Christ is sacrificed time and time again. He was sacrificed once and all for sin. And so that's one way we guard the doctrine of the church. We also look over the studies that people study in small groups and in men's groups and in women's groups. We look over what's going on in the library. We seek to respond to cultural tens and things that are being spoken in the culture. There's a lot of false teaching out there about if you just believe enough, if you follow this fast and do this regimen, then God will give you all that you want. And so the elders are called to defend the sheep against false teachings and false teachers. Finally, elders are called to pray and petition for the church. Again, I read this verse to you earlier, but when deacons are instituted, the elders say this. They said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Our elders meet probably on an every other week basis, and we meet for 90 minutes during youth group in Awana typically. And, and during those 90 minutes, we stop to pray anywhere from two times to 12 times, depending on what we're going through on the agenda. We'll stop and we will pray for individuals. We will pray for families. We will pray for missionaries. We will pray for ministries in the church. There are also special times of prayer. James 5.14 says, if anyone is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is for serious illness. It's not just if you have the common cold. This is, this is in, in, the, in, the first, in James, it's for people who need the elders to come to them because they're too sick to go to the elders. But, but we as elders will gather with people in the church and we will anoint their head with oil. We will put our hands on them and we'll pray for healing. And you know what? Sometimes God heals them and sometimes God does not heal them and he waits to heal them fully in heaven. But this is what elders are called to do, to pray and petition. So just to recap, elders are called by God to, among other things, lead and love the church, to teach and preach the word, to protect and defend the church, and to pray and petition for the church. Finally, our main focus, this passage. What are the qualifications for elders? It is important for you to understand the qualifications of elders for two reasons. The first reason is because if you are a member here at Jacobswell Church, you vote on elders. There will probably be a vote sometime this summer on someone to become an elder and someone to become a deacon. And so knowing the qualifications is important for you to be an informed voter and to say, okay, can I get behind this person? But the second reason why these elder qualifications are so important is with the exception of verse 1, um, these are attributes every man should aspire to. And so if you're a teenage boy here and you're wondering what does manhood look like, this is it. This is what God says a godly man looks like. And so even again, as we go through this list, think to yourself, where do I need to grow? Maybe pick one or two areas, pray to the Lord, seek others to help you grow in these areas. Now, I decided to go different than what's in the bulletin. And so I'm just going to go verse by verse, verse one through seven, and walk through these different attributes. So uh, verse one says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires or desires to the office of overseer, elder, he desires a noble task. This aspiring is not an aspiration to a title or a position or power. It is aspiration, as you see here, to a task. 
the noble task to love and to lead Christ's church. This aspiration is what we call an internal calling in which a man believes that the Holy Spirit is urging him to pursue eldership in the local church. Now, there needs to be external confirmation of that as well, and that's what we get in verses 2 through 7, but there needs to be an internal call inside the man that says, yes, I want to give sacrificially to love and serve Christ's church. You know, I am consistently amazed by our elders. I just told someone Uh, just, I think, a week ago. I feel like I'm surrounded by the all-star of elders. Uh, I feel the same way about our staff. They are amazing people. They're not perfect, but they are amazing people. And these elders give of their time. They give of their talent. They give of their treasure sacrificially. And they don't necessarily get a whole lot of recognition for it. As a matter of fact, typically, uh, they are the complaint department. (laughs) And that's kind of what they get a lot of times. And yet these men serve so faithfully And I cannot remember, I'm sure there was a time, I cannot remember a time that an elder ever complained about the responsibilities of being an elder here at Jacobsville Church. They are amazing men. Not perfect men, but they are amazing men. And I am so thankful to serve alongside them. Verse 2, it continues. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The Greek word literally means blameless. Now, this cannot mean sinless because only Jesus could be our elder then. But what it means is that they have a solid Christian character, which is laid out in the rest of these verses. Verse 2 continues, and it says, the husband of one wife. A literal translation is that he must be a one-woman man. Now, by this, Paul is not disqualifying single men in the church, nor is he disqualifying, in my belief, men where their wives have run off on them and left them and divorced them. But he is disqualifying men that have a reputation or who have a history of not being faithful to women that he has married. And so if he goes from woman to woman to woman, he is not qualified to be an elder because if he cannot be faithful to a woman, if he cannot fight for his marriage, and marriage is hard, if he cannot fight for his marriage, how is he going to fight to be faithful in the local church? Verse 2 continues and says that he must be sober-minded. This means he must be level-headed, temperate. And his emotions think clearly, objectively, lovingly, does not lose his temper easily. Verse 2 continues, says self-control. Someone who can curb their impulses, their sinful impulses, restrain desires for sin, seek accountability to pursue holiness. Again, not someone who is perfect, but someone who is growing in their victory over sin. Next is respectable. Someone that you look up to. Someone that you say, I would like my son to be like this man. Hospitable. Someone who opens their home to welcome the sojourner, the the visitor, the, the neighbor to love and to care for them. But also, publicly, someone who is warm to others. You know, I had someone, I think it was in last membership class, said, the reason why we're at Jacob's Well Church is because the first time I came in, an elder came over to me and greeted me and talked to me and asked me questions. And for that reason, I came back to Jacob's Well, and I have kept coming back to Jacob's Well Church. Elders are men that should be warm and should be welcoming to all of you, but especially to the sojourner that comes through the church doors. Next, it says, able to teach. Again, this does not mean everyone has to preach. We'll get that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But they do teach in Sunday school, small groups, and other formats. Verse 3, not a drunker. This is someone who does not indulge in alcohol, who gets drunk, or who uses other drugs because if someone is dependent on substances, then they're undependable as an elder. 
continues and it picks up speed and we can group some of these together. It says, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. You know, with this, with this qualification, there is an assumption that in the church there will be arguments, <laughs> that there will be some division over beliefs and philosophies and things of that sort. And so an elder should be one who does not go on social media to stir up everyone with controversial statements. It should be someone who can handle conflict in a way that is honorable and humble and gentle and patient. He can de-escalate the volatility of the situation and address the real problem. Goes on and says, not a lover of money. You see, if, if, if an elder is a lover of money, which I think all of us struggle with to a certain degree, but if someone is a lover of money, then they can have the temptation to show favoritism to those who have more money in the church. They can go hang out with the people who have a swimming pool, not the people who are maybe stuck in a rundown apartment. They can have a temptation to not confront rich people on sin, but instead shrink back and only challenge those who do not benefit them financially. Verse four continues, it says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive or subordinate. I don't know if you've ever seen a house where the kids run the house, where the kids run the dad. It says it shouldn't be this way. The dad should be running the house with gentleness and love and compassion. And again, there is an assumption here that raising children is hard, that it's hard to keep children submissive. This by no means means that children are perfect because no child is perfect, but when a child rebels. The father is there to engage them, to care for them, to discipline, to love them, to challenge them, and to lead them in the way of godliness. And so if, if a man's kids are an absolute train wreck, he should not be an elder in the church. Verse 5 continues and tells us why this is. It says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, a man's primary ministry it's in his home. His secondary ministry is in the church. And so if he is absent or abusive in his primary ministry, there's no way he can do the secondary ministry, which is in the church. He cannot be a healthy spiritual leader in the church if he's not one at home. You know, when I was in seminary, I was uh, really, really out of shape. And I heard of the St. Louis Marathon. And because I'm cheap, I knew that if I signed up and paid for it, I would actually do it. And so I signed up for the St. Louis Marathon, and I found out after signing up that the St. Louis Marathon was a qualifier for the Boston Marathon, meaning that if someone did well enough in the St. Louis Marathon, they would be able to go and run in the Boston Marathon. My age group, uh, to qualify for the Boston Marathon, you had to run a full marathon in three hours and 10 minutes to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I ran my race, get this, in two hours and 30 minutes, but it was a half marathon. And so I did not qualify for the Boston Marathon. But you see, that marathon was proof. It was a litmus test. It was a qualification to go and run in a greater marathon. You see, Paul is saying is before a man runs the elder marathon, he must first qualify by running the household marathon successfully. Notice it does not say if a man runs a business successfully. It's saying if he manages his own household well. Verse 6, it continues. It says he must not be a recent convert 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I don't know if you've ever seen this where a celebrity will come, faith, come to faith in Christ or profess faith in Christ, and immediately they have them preaching and teaching in all the churches across America, and then suddenly people are surprised when there's a collapse. You see, it's foolish to put a child in the faith in charge of things that are for mature believers. They should not be a a new believer, because as the devil was puffed up with conceit because of his beauty, a new believer may be puffed up with conceit and saying, look at me, I'm such a gift to God's church. You see, a believer needs time to mature, to experience the ups and downs of Christianity and to gain humility. Now the final qualification, verse seven. He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that is, unbelievers, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul is concerned what unbelievers think of elders. A man of God should not be a man of empty promises, nor a man who people are afraid of because of his harshness. He should be known as a man of integrity, respect, that he should be upright, a lover of good and of God. They should see him as honest and consistent and faithful and loving and generous. This is how non-Christians should respect a man for him to become an elder, even if they don't agree with him on his theology or his beliefs or his practices. There's a story of a man who was working in a department store and he was told that he would have to start working on Sunday mornings and would have to miss church. And so he told his boss, he said, I can't work on Sunday mornings. And so the boss fired him. He went off and started applying for positions and he applied for a position at a bank. And when the, the boss at the bank called the man at the department store as his reference, the department store boss said, why, yes, I would be glad to recommend him. He, would, he will make you a good employee. I just fired him a few days ago. Fired him, the bank president exclaimed, why would you recommend a man whom you just recently dismissed from your service? And the store manager explained the circumstance and remarked, I know he will make you a good man for your bank, because if he will not steal the Lord's time, he will not steal your money. A Christian male elder should be one who is thought of highly by unbelievers because of his character and his compassion and his love, even when they don't agree with him. You know, as I look through this qualifications of elder, I think of I think of John Maxwell, who, 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 is, who speaks a lot about leadership. And he says that a leader is one who knows the way, who goes the way, and who shows the way, right? And this is true of an elder. An elder is one who should know the way. He should know the scriptures. He should know the word of God. He is one that should go the way. He should live out the truths of the scripture, the character qualifications of an elder in his life. But then he should show the way. He should teach them to others. And so if you aspire to being a godly man, or if you aspire to be an elder, God is calling you to know the way, to know his word, to show the way, to, te- to, 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 to live that out in your life, and then to, sorry, to know the way, to go the way, to live that out, and then to show the way, to show it to others. Let me end with two illustrations. First off, um, this past January, or the last month, uh, January is always a month in which we receive uh, officer nominations for elders and deacons. And we encourage you, the congregation, if you know anyone who fits the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
and uh, you think they make a good elder or a deacon, please go to them and ask them if they aspire to be an elder or a deacon, because that's one of the qualifications. And if they aspire or maybe aspire, then share their name with me, and I will follow up with them and take them down the training road process. Well, last month, uh, one of our elders actually went to go to a man in the congregation and asked him, hey, would you, do you aspire to be an elder or a deacon in the church? Would you be interested in taking this officer training? And the response was, who, me? Like, are you kidding? Like, I don't think I, I'm ready for something like that. I don't fit the qualifications for that. And he may be right. He may not fit the qualifications to be an elder. But here's the reality. Any man that looks at this list here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and says, yep, I check all the boxes perfectly, is not qualified to be an elder. Because an elder needs to have an accurate view of the holiness of God that is listed here, but also an accurate view of himself. And he needs to see that he does not fill all of these qualifications perfectly. They should characterize his, his life, but he should know and see that he does not fulfill them perfectly. You see, an elder is to be a gospel man, a man that recognizes his own sinfulness and shortcomings where he falls short of the qualifications that God has for him. And an elder is one who looks to the ultimate elder, Jesus Christ, who fulfills all of the qualifications of an elder perfectly and fulfills all of the qualifications to be the son of God, the savior of the world. He is the elder who has shown us what eldership is supposed to look like as he has gone to the cross and sacrificially borne the weight of our sin and paid for it in full and raised from the dead to give us newness of life, to qualify us not necessarily to be elders, but qualifies by his righteousness for something sweeter, to be children of the living God. And so as you look for elders and for deacons in the church, as you seek maybe to be an elder or deacon in the church, it is not a call to perfection because you would never qualify, but that these characteristics would be characteristic of you and that you would be one who is repentant of your sin and looking to Christ for your salvation. Final story. And this one is specifically for those who are elders in the church or who aspire to be elders. Woodrow Wilson was the 28th president of the United States, and he served two full terms as president of the United States. And after his presidency, he was asked what the greatest honor had been in his life. You know, he had traveled the world, he'd seen diplomats, he'd instituted programs. He was asked, what was the greatest honor in your life? And his response was this, to be an elder in the Presbyterian Church. That was his response. He'd been president, most powerful man in the world for eight years, and yet to be an elder in the Presbyterian Church, to shepherd Christ's flock, he considered to be the greatest honor and privilege of his life. Elders, I know that the work is long, that it is hard, that it is often without much glory, but God says it is a noble task, and personally, it is an honor and privilege to serve alongside of you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for showing us, men, who we are called to be, the characteristics that we are to aspire to, even if we don't aspire to be an elder or a deacon. God, pray that you would convict us where we fall short, we fall really short, and that you help us to pursue holiness and godliness and manhood as you have created us to be, Lord. Lord, as we now turn to your table, 
And we were reminded of the ultimate elder, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we look to him and him alone as our king and as our savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.